The following content has been provided by RWTH Aachen University. All right, um, let us take a look at the three approaches to HDI research that we're going to be covering. Um, the first approach of doing HDI research is sort of the, the laboratory sort of way that you imagine, you know, like white lab code research, right? So um, if you have, you know, two kinds of menus and you want to figure out which menu type, the circular menu or the linear menu is faster to execute, you might run a little experiment and measure how fast people are using it, using a defined task, and then you do your statistics on the results and you report your findings. That's typical empirical science, right? You, so you basically empirically measure something, you find some data, and you report on that. But there is a second part, in, especially in HCI research, that is very useful and that you sometimes have to use because this doesn't cover all the cases that you might have to look at, um, which is more ethnography-oriented. So that is going out and observing people in real settings. Um, you know, ethnography goes back to the, the folks that went out and, and went and observed, I don't know, um, native uh, people in other countries, right? So really immersing themselves into a foreign culture and just looking at what they're seeing. And they weren't you know, running quantified experiments with A-B testing there. They were just trying to understand what's going on, what's different, uh, and can I see any patterns. So since HCI is also about people and technology, ethnographical approaches are often very valuable and, and might be the only way you can get forward with your question. And the third one um, is one that appeals a lot to us computer science-oriented HCI people. Uh, that is, if I want to answer a question or I have an idea about a new interface technique that might work great, I'm going to build it and I'm going to test it. Now, of course, the challenge here is what are you comparing to, right? You always need to tell people it's better than something else. But that's sometimes difficult, so there are particular ways of doing engineering, if you like, HCI research, where you build prototypes, you build systems, and then you basically you kick their tires and you see how well they work, where they break down, how far your new interface technique actually covers um, the, the use cases. You can find out more about the, the test and the look um, methods from the book by Lazar, the Research Methods in HCI book, the first one that I mentioned on the list. Um, about the making one, um, James Landay um, has a wonderful slide set called uh, James and Friends Systems How-To. Um, and that's, uh, we have a reference to that later. Um, that's a wonderful, um, insightful paper by a very um, well-established researcher in HCI uh, about engineering research in HCI. Let's first take a look at this one. So we're going to go through these three in order so that you get an idea of the breadth of how you can do HCI research. And not all of it is technical. Some of it is, is, is non-technical. First one is the empirical approach. Now, you may remember this, you know, the DIA cycle from DIS1. Right? And empirical research is also iterative. So it's kind of a, you know, a circular process, very much like designing a project um, or, or an interface. Uh, and one of those um, sort of iterations, as an example, could be you, 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 uh, you observe something. You, maybe you go out to, I don't know, the, the train station, and you notice that a lot of people are walking around with their uh, phones in front of their faces, right? And they're like bumping into each other and all that. And so you may have an idea and say like, well, I have a... I have a theory that people who are using, I don't know, smartwatches um, have less of that issue than people who are using their smartphones to, to check stuff while they're on the way. I don't know, I'm just making this up right now. So you have, a, you have a hunch. You then turn that into a research question. The observation turns into a research question. And from there on, um, you then have to formulate a testable hypothesis. So you have to come up with some kind of idea of how am I going to turn that into something I can actually measure and compare and test. And once you've done that, you then run an experiment, and guess what? You're back to observing. In this case, you're observing how your experiment goes. Uh, you're evaluating what you get out of this, and then this might, you know, hopefully answer your research question. What mostly happens is that you end up with more questions, right? Because you discover, oh, okay, so there is something going on with like smartphone versus smartwatch, but it's actually not so much whether it's a watch or a phone. It's more about the display size. So I probably have to study small and bigger display sizes rather than watches versus smartphones. So you know, the, your research question evolves and your, your research evolves and then gets, gets further. So this is an example here um, for an initial observation. Um, 
one day I was driving with Torsten Karo, one of my PhD students, in a car, and um, suddenly, I don't even remember how this came up, but suddenly we were thinking like, hmm, uh, you know, one of us was like fiddling with his uh, like, you know, uh, T-shirt, and we thought, hey, you can actually roll your cloth between your fingers like this, right? You can do this with your, with your sweater or something. And we were like, couldn't this be a cool way to control like an MP3 player while you're jogging, rather than having to press buttons on your MP3 player or to get it out of your pocket or to even press wearable buttons on a jacket where you still have to look where the button is? Couldn't I just reach over here while I'm jogging and do this to adjust the volume? Wouldn't that be cool? So, it was an observation, it was a hunch, an idea for an inter interaction technique that we thought was interesting. So we took this and sort of turned this into a more sort of testable research question, something more sort of a, a proposal that could actually be tested. So for example here, uh, for pinching cloth, different areas of the body would actually differ in preference and the way people pinch. So my question would then be, Huh, is there, can I test whether different areas of, of my clothing, like the, the, clo the, the stuff here, and maybe over here, and maybe on your, on, your, uh, on your knee or something, are there different areas where this works better or worse, and can we, can we create a map of these areas, how well they would work for this kind of um, um, interaction on, on wearable computing? So now we've started defining, defining some conditions or characteristics that change um, for different values and different individuals, and we start formulating a research question out of this. It's a kind of like a proposal that we can then test. And from that, you would then move to an even more concrete hypothesis. So this is a concrete, testable statement that you derive from your research question, so it becomes even more concrete. It's kind of like a more advanced um, version of it. And it's operational. Operational means I can sort of attach a process and numbers to it. I know how to run this hypothesis in an, an experiment, and how to test it in an experiment, and how to find out whether it's true or not. Um, so you gotta find some external observable behavior that you're measuring. Um, and uh, so, you know, for example, if this was our uh, statement that we just had as a research question, we would have to try giving an operational definition for these variables um, in this example. So how would you do that? Can you give me an example? Like if this was the question you had, your research question, and you now wanted to actually do an experiment, what would be a way to, to formulate that? How would you go ahead and, and do an experiment on this? Yeah? Um, people, uh, instead of changing the volume, they can also change the song that's being played on the MP3. So okay. the area which is most accessible can be, let's say the left arm can be the change of song, mm -hmm. and the right arm can be uh, the change of volume. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're adding to, or, or you're expanding the idea of what we could do with this technique, which is great. Uh, you're also introducing different things. Uh, volume adjustment is kind of like a continuous adjustment. Next previous track would actually be more a discrete uh, adjustment. So that, that sort of broadens the potential use of this technique, also broadens the potential kinds of like discrete versus continuous. And that was actually a topic that later on in our research we discovered is very important to look at, continuous versus discrete, discrete input. Um, but for now, all I'm interested in is I would like to have you describe an experiment to me that would actually allow me to test this. What would you do? Yeah. Uh, we could take some users, some particular number of users from a particular age group, for example, mm -hmm. and then we can see that uh, generally what do they do? Do they uh, touch their hand for controlling or their leg? Uh, depending on that, uh -huh. also depending upon whether they're left-handed or right-handed, uh -huh. that okay. make a difference. Okay. And then we can decide maybe on the, uh, depending on the observations that uh -huh. whether the hand is most accessible. Yeah. Also, uh, while running, what is more tangible, uh -huh. the hand or the leg. Uh -huh. So depending upon these conditions, we can... Good. Yeah, these were some excellent ideas. Uh, so first thing, what you said is, you're going to just ask people, imagine, that's how I'm, I think you're doing it, imagine you can control your MP3 player by you know, touching your, your, your clothes somewhere and, and rolling your clothes between your fingers. Where would you do that? And then you ask them to go for the most natural area the way they'd like to do it. That's kind of like called a gesture elicitation study where you don't tell them where to do the operation, you just look for where do they do it naturally. That's the way to do it. Another way to do it would be what? If you didn't want to sort of let them go run free, yeah? 
Exactly. Yeah, that's the second way of doing it. You tell them, uh, we want you to try this out on your upper arm and your, 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 your whatever, your leg or, or whatever. And uh, then you ask them to rate this afterwards. Right? Those are the two approaches. Um, you brought up an interesting thing. You said, uh, what about running versus other situations? So maybe running and what could be other situations? Yeah? Maybe I uh, observe people in more natural states like walking, running, sitting around. Aha. Uh -huh. Very good. Not just running and standing, but also sitting. That could be another situation. Yeah. Sure. Then I look where they have their hands usually and try to find a cliff that is rather close in distance to that natural hands. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. So you could look at the natural position of these people and then derive from that where you are. Um, although that would get you more into the sort of design part of things. Uh, you wouldn't do so much of a asking for their preference, right? You would just observe them and not ask them, which is fine. You know, observations are always important. You always need to look at people and ask them. We learned that in DIS1, I think. Um, but if you wanted to just extend the study we're, we're beginning to build, then you would just say, I'm going to do the same experiment, you know, use these different parts of your clothing, but I would do it three times. I would do it while running with this person. I would do it while they're standing. I would do it while they're sitting. And then I would have three sub-conditions, basically, three different treatments that I need to do and all of these might give me different results. So I'm beginning, you can see, I'm, I'm beginning to, to um, explore that space. I'm beginning to explore that technique and learn more about it. I'm going to end up with richer knowledge than just saying, oh, you know, the, the arm is always best or the knee is always best. Maybe when sitting, you know, the leg is superb. When you're running, it's not so great, right? So understanding this in more detail, understanding more about the technique and when it's applicable and when pr people's preferences change in what way, that's the, that's the rich texture you want to get at, right? Okay, so um, this is what we actually did, right? So we published a paper at CHI 2011, um, and it actually got a, a Best Short Paper Award at the conference. Um, and what we did is basically we identified 16 different body areas. This was basically done informally among the group, just saying those could be good candidates. Um, and then we asked participants to perform the pinching gesture in each of those areas. And we collected convenience ratings, so we asked people how convenient that was, and we rate it then on a, on a five-point Likert scale, which is basically just saying, you know, was this convenient? I totally agree or I totally disagree. Those are the extremes. And then in between, you've got a couple more um, answers on a five-point scale. Um, and you can see here what happened, right? So this, these are some results. Uh, this is probably the, um, the standing situation, I would guess, um, where, you, um, where you basically can see, uh, shoulder, not so great. These are good. Uh, we, for obvious reasons, excluded these areas from the beginning. Um, but uh, you know, the rest we tried, and, and you can see kind of you know, what you might expect. But now we have data. Now we can actually report this. And that's the difference. If I just walk up to you and tell you, hey, you know, the best place to do this is obviously the upper arm, you could say, maybe. You know, but you know, how can you prove it to me? So with this data, I have some backup, because I've asked, I don't know, 10, 15 people, and they've all agreed that this was the error. So it's more. Um, based on actual observations and question and, and asking users rather than just making stuff up. Yes? Uh, the study looks a bit like you were biased on right-handed people from the colors. Like the, the right side is a bit more green than the left side of the torso. Yeah, yeah. Like right. And I think this is actually already corrected. We already corrected it for normalized, uh, for, for dominant versus non-dominant hand. So, uh, this is not all the touches on the right arm, but it's all the touches on the dominant arm, basically. So yeah, you mentioned right-handed, left-handed, and you know, those are the ways that you need to think through and then say, OK, I'm going to not use the raw data. I'm going to map it to whatever was the dominant hand, and that may, probably makes more sense. And of course, you need to explain that when you report your results, because somebody might say, well, maybe the dominant hand isn't what we should be looking at. Maybe it's important to look at the actual right or left hand, no matter whether they are right hand or left handed. Maybe there's something else going on. You know? um, so for example, I don't know, when you, if you observe people entering a, a bus and putting the ticket into the ticket machine, no matter whether the right hand or left hand, if the ticket machine is obviously to the right of you, you'd all probably always use that hand because it's the more convenient one, even if you're right hand, left hand. So there are all these things you need to think through. Um, you also looked at, for example, the seam of your pocket. So you could do this movement like this and roll it in, on, at, the, at the seam of your, your trouser pocket here. And that also came up pretty well. OK, but 
we're going to show you several examples of research. Don't get too invested in, in learning the research itself here. We're, look at the method we're using, right? Look at how we got from an idea that we had, you know, during a car drive to a published paper at the top conference with a, with a best paper award. Um, this is the, you know, sort of agreed also sort of the ideal way of things happening, right? It doesn't always go that way. Uh, but that's, that's how we'd like it to go. Yes? Uh, I just have a question about how many people you would need to do this Oh, yes, the N question. How big should the N be? Um, there is no good hard answer for a single number here. It depends a bit on what you're trying to learn. If you have very general questions, like the preference of different parts of the body, and you can make an assumption that that's probably not going to differ hugely among people, except for the right-handed, left-handed, which we already corrected for, then your numbers can be fairly low. Um, if we had wanted to get very precise information about, you know, is this area really better than this area, or what's the difference between these two exactly, we would need more and more people because, as you know from statistics, the higher your n is, the more precise the kinds of things are that you can say about your findings. So n goes up, the number of users goes up that you study with the precision of the result that you need, um, and also with the um, individual differences that you can expect between people. So oftentimes, very basal things that you do um, are easier to test because they are the same across you know, different populations. Whereas if you ask people about their preferences for, I don't know, different textiles um, to use for this, you might get much more varied results based on cultural or, or gender or age, um, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, but we'll talk about the question of how big should n be um, in more detail. There are ways that you can actually find out how many people you will need in order to arrive at a result of a particular confidence. So there's a way of, of backwards computing your, your number. Um, and then there's different ways of structuring your experiment. If you don't have enough people, you can, you, there's ways to tweak things. Um, all right. So... Um, There are three strategies in which you can um, do observations. So we're, we're looking now at the observation part, right? So we've, we've had a research question, we've had a hypothesis, I've shown you how you can run a test there. Now you're observing. Um, there are three ways you can do this. Descriptive research looks at is what, what is happening. Uh, it focuses on the current state of each individual variable, like the variable of um, how happy is somebody with uh, the area they're touching? What are they reporting back? Relational research would look at X and Y happening together. So they look at the correlation between things. Um, so you measure two or more variables and, you, and that exist naturally and you measure them with each participant and you try to compare them and see whether there are correlations between the two. Like when one changes, the other one changes as well. The third type is experimental research where you want to show that X is actually causing Y, in which case you nail down all the variables except for one, then you change that one and you observe how the other one changes. Which of these three, if you could do all three of these, which of these three would give you the most uh, knowledge? Who would say descriptive? Relational? Experimental? Yeah, obviously, right? Because when you can find out that something is actually showing you causal connection, that's the most powerful one. Right? And we'll show you examples of, if you don't have that causal connection, how you can actually easily trip off um, wrong, you know, um, wrong findings because you know, correlation doesn't imply uh, a causal effect. So, but let's start with descriptive because even that has its value and sometimes that's all you can do or that you want to do. With descriptive research, the first kind of observation here, um, you're basically just describing a naturally occurring phenomenon. And sometimes the value is just in digging that out and finding it and, uh, and reporting it to others and making them aware of what's happening. I'll show you an example in a minute. What you do there is you measure, you observe, you report individual variables without claiming any relationships to other variables or, or like influence of, oh, when you design it that way, this way, this is what happens. When you design it this other way, this is what happens. You just say, with these things, this is happening. 
This can often occur also when you have a new technology. You know, um, like for example, um, GPS in cars. We'll show you an example in a second uh, that uses that. So we do this with observation. So basically you just observing the user doing something or with a survey where you send out something to lots of people and ask them questions or with a case study where you basically go into, for example, in a, in a company and observe uh, there what's happening. Um, so here's an example. Uh, this was a best paper award um, at CHI 2012. And CHI, everybody who does research in HCI, uh, if they want to play sort of in the top league, they send their best work every year to CHI. Of those papers that get sent in, about 20 to 25% get accepted. So three out of four don't even make it into the conference. And in the end, the top 1% of all submitted papers, so not 25, but top 1%, get a best paper award. So this is really work that the community liked a lot. And this is an example of a paper that did nothing else but just observe and report those observations. But they did it in a way that was so good and so insightful and so helpful for the community that it got a best paper award. So this was called the, the Troubles of Driving with, uh, with GPS. Um, and uh, it was done by Barry Brown and um, I've got the name of the other guy, Laurier, um, from Edinburgh. And the goal was to understand how people interact with GPS car navigation systems in a non-controlled setting. So nothing special, not like you have to drive exactly this route or use exactly this GPS or you know, do exactly this uh, or be there as fast as possible or whatever. Um, just observing them in their everyday uh, lives using their, their, their nav sets. They had 14 drivers that they observed, two video cameras in the car, um, and uh, they took field notes while they were doing this. They ended up with um, nine hours of video in 75 clips that turned into 37 detailed transcriptions. And transcription means you look at the video and you really write down what's happening every second or five seconds or 10 seconds, no matter, it depends on what you're looking at in the video. So this is a lot of work to do. Then they analyzed the data to look for common patterns or themes and try to construct some theories that would explain them possibly. So this is uh, an example. Um, this video has no, no audio, I think. Um, but uh, what you will see is a user taking a turn um, like they say, while well, the driver follows what the GPS recommends, the driver still needs skills to read what the GPS says and even to ignore the GPS instructions. So you'll see the user making a turn, but she has to stop in the middle of the turn to wait for a pedestrian to cross. The GPS gets updated and already starts telling her new things, thinking that she's already made the turn, but she hasn't because she had to stop for the pedestrian. So you'll see her ignoring the GPS's instructions because she knows the GPS is basically off, right? It's already talking about the next part of the trip that isn't actually happening yet at this moment. Note that this is a very short interaction. It's just one turn in this probably, you know, 45-minute drive or something that they did. Um, and that one turn is even broken down into steps and analyzed at, you know, like the sub-second level, essentially, to show exactly what the user's interaction with the device in the natural setting is. So uh, let's play that video for a short here. Are we sure that there's no, yeah, there's no audio on these? So here the GPS gives instructions to turn right. We're not hearing it, but that's what the GPS is currently saying. Um, and then what happens is, you know, she's holding it in her hand, which is, of course, again, you know, not something that you're supposed to be doing, but people do it all the time, right? And then she has to align the GPS instruction with the actual road, um, and then the GPS, you know, is she stops, waits for the pedestrian to cross. That probably that person there having to make it over the street. And now the GPS is already going on and telling her other things. It updates and shows the next instruction. Um, but she's actually like, ah, yeah, I know this isn't right. This is not supposed to be happening yet. So she ignores the instruction and, doesn't and it does not cause any, to the observer, any visible confusion. It's a normal trouble, the trouble with GPS. Just something we know the device isn't really, really good at. So that's a typical situation that, uh, that people find themselves in. So now she continues on and now she knows that her GPS is again telling her the right thing. 
So you'll notice that this is a short interaction, not a lot happening here, uh, but in this short time something important is going on that as a designer of a GPS, if you see this and somebody points this out, you're like, huh, I never thought about that situation. You know, the GPS could actually be off. Maybe I need to think about ways that I could redesign the system to maybe be less pushy in those situations, to continue telling you something that you don't want to hear. You know, there, there's ways you could reuse that knowledge, um, but that's not what they're doing. They're not giving design recommendations as to how to change stuff. They're just pointing stuff out. And there are more examples in this video. This is just one of many findings that they, they did. So the contribution and benefits. This is sort of the, the holy grail of a publication of, of research work. You have a contribution. You have something that people didn't know before, that they now know and that they can rely on because you proved it and you evaluated your finding. You show that it's true. And the benefit then is that they actually can also make use of it because I could prove to you beyond any doubt that, I don't know, snow is actually green. Let's assume that was true. But it wouldn't be much use for you, right? So the benefit is the question, what do we actually, what can we actually do with this? So here, both the contribution was great because they did this video analysis study of driving using GPS navigation systems in natural settings. And um, the benefit then is that it argues for understanding driving with the GPS as an, a very active, active process, not as what people call docile driving, meaning GPS talks, I follow instructions. Basically, the authors pointed out and showed with their, with their you know, analysis beyond doubt that this is not how GPSs are used. Although many GPS designers probably think, I have to just make the GPS say instructions and the driver will do what the GPS says and we're done. That's not what's going on and this paper showed it. So as a conclusion, this paper showed that the designer of these devices should take the driver intelligence into account. Like the driver is, is an intelligent being himself that understands how the GPS works, how it sometimes doesn't work, and they make their own uh, stories up around it and they interact with it much more actively than just listening to its instructions. Um, so in a way, also, you know, this wonderful picture of the GPS in the hand on the steering wheel. And who here, we're gonna cut that out later from the video, but who here has ever driven with their smartphone in their hand while driving GPS? Yeah, come on, you can <laughs> Yeah, right, okay, so, and the rest is just not showing their hands. Um, so this is, a, this is a situation that does happen, right? Um, and it's good to document these things because they tell the you know, device designers in the end, the practitioners, the industry, that they need to think about their devices in a more complex way. It's not as simple as it seems. So you could say, when you really think about how that could, in the long run, influence industry, in a way, this research is doing what the company should be doing in the first place if they did a proper DIA cycle, right? Then they would take these devices, give them to people, see that, oh my God, they're holding them in their hand. Uh, we need to do something about this, right? Um, so in a way, this is sort of the analysis phase, if you like, the study phase that is being done there in research. And this is actually, although it's, you could say it's, it's, it's fundamental research, it's very applicable, right? It's very applicable in, in, uh, immediately to, to an industry branch. Okay, so um, let's look at the second type of research. This is relational research. This is where you basically um, measure a set of variables for each participant. You look for patterns of relationships in these variables, which means I look at two variables, and I notice that they actually change in parallel. Maybe like this, or maybe like this. You know? So something is going on. There's a correlation between two variables, two things I'm observing uh, that are changing at the same time in, in unison. Every time the one changes, the other one changes as well. Um, you then try to measure the strength of that correlation. Now how, how tightly are these two variables bound together? Um, so to give you an example, let's say you are looking at how many hours are, you ask 10 kids, how many hours per uh, week are you playing video games? Or you observe that, whatever, you measure it, and you measure their typing speed in an exercise, typing a paragraph of text. Now you've got two variables, right? Hours of video games, typing speed. And maybe, who knows, you see that they too correlate. So people who type faster also play more video games per hour. You could report that as a correlation and you could show it beyond doubt from your data. What you cannot say 
is playing video games makes you a faster typist. Because you don't know whether the one variable actually influenced the other or whether maybe they're both influenced by something else that is independent of these two things. Maybe it's influenced by general intellect. Maybe intel smart kids like to play video games more. You know, that doesn't mean that playing video games makes you smart. It just means the other way around. Right? Maybe smart kids also type faster. So you know, when you see these two variables changing in parallel, you cannot say that one is influencing the other. You can just say they seem to be connected somehow, but we don't know how yet. That's why relational research isn't as strong as the experimental research that we're going to look at the third method, which will actually allow you to test these causal relationships. So here's an example. Uh, again, this was a best paper at CHI 2010 um, by Burke, Marlow, and Lento. Uh, these people were from CMU, from Carnegie Mellon University in the US, and from Facebook. So this was a research collaboration between a university and industry. Um, and what they did is they did an empirical analysis of the relationship between direct and passive communication on Facebook and social well-being, including loneliness, bridging, and bonding social capital. Uh, the survey was done in Likert scales, and you were asking about number of users. Here we have 1,100 users, so you know, that's quite a number. Um, what they did is they analyzed the past two months of users' Facebook data. Uh, for example, the actual friend count, um, the directed communications like comments or likes, and the passive consumption of broadcast items like status updates from other people. Um, of course, the benefit of a survey is that you get access to a lot of people. The problem with surveys is the data is pretty noisy because you're not there when people fill it out, so you can't answer questions about, like, what do you mean with this question? How am I supposed to answer that? Um, but the patterns that they discovered were like this. Uh, in general, we had, for example, the loneliness score that people self-reported, right? You know, how lonely they felt. Uh, was higher with the male population than the female population. Um, this is you know, a simple general relationship. There was a positive relationship if you look at, for example, the score they people, these people had in directed communication, which could be measured from their Facebook activity, and their social bonding, which they, again, self-reported. So people who reported a higher social bonding also had more directed communications on Facebook. Or here's a negative one. A directed communication score, for example, um, correlated negatively with the loneliness score that people self-reported. Now, um, this is, these, these concrete dots here are simulated right, for educational purposes, um, but it's based on the results that Burke and their colleagues actually found in the paper. So you can look at the paper and you'll find these kinds of things. So for the left one, you could, for example, say, um, as gender changes from male to female, the loneliness score decreases. We can see that. There is a correlation. Something is going on. Um, the middle graph tells you more people with more direct communication um, also appear to be better in social bonding. Users who have more direct communication also seem to feel less lonely. But we don't know whether one is influencing the other. We don't know the causality here. Let's take a look at um, the strength of this, this, this relationship. Here's an example. Um, these are three possible results you could get. Like This is three possible results these guys from Facebook could have found. Um, all of them seem to be suggesting a uh, connection between these two data points. But it's different. Right? You can clearly see on the right-hand side here, that's a very good correlation. Right? As this goes up, this goes up almost like perfectly. Here, yeah, it's going up. It's a little noisy, but there's still clearly a trend. And this is a point cloud where you know, it would be hard to claim a strong correlation between those two variables. So question for the mathematically inclined, or those people who remember the statistics class, how do you measure the strength of this correlation? Yeah? Yeah, basically sum of square deviance. Mm -hmm, exactly, sum of square deviance or sum of square errors um, between the data points and the model you're creating. Um, there's also other measurements that are related. Any others? Yeah? Bias? Um, I don't think it's bias in the statistical sense here. But you may have heard about the, um, this famous R coefficient, uh, the person's, um, person correlation coefficient, R or R square, which is basically telling you how close to a line, basically, is the match here between these two. 
So there are, there are mathematical ways of measuring how strong the connection between these two data sets is. Um, and still, we haven't talked about causality, right? So for example, even though you might get this data here with a fairly good um, correlation, you can say whether loneliness means that people do less direct communication or less direct communication leads to more loneliness, uh, or whether there's a third variable, like whether you live in the countryside or in the city, that leads to both higher direct communication and lower loneliness. We don't know. It's just like with the kids and typing. This is the third variable problem, and there could be an unidentified third variable that controls the correlated ones. Okay. Um, another limitation of relational research is, um, especially with something like a, a survey, you get data from a large number of people, but it's fairly shallow, meaning that it's, for example, like self-reported um, loneliness score, right? Uh, that's not telling you a lot. People are giving you this, but how do you know what, how they measured their own uh, loneliness? People might have different scales, different people might have different self-impressions of each other, uh, of themselves and of other people. Uh, so it's hard to do this. You can improve that by, for example, following up your survey with interviews. If people have taken the survey, you might be able to approach them and say, hey, thanks for taking the survey. Can I talk to you? I want to talk about the data that you filled in and maybe clarify some things. Or maybe new questions come up that you can then ask them. Um, or there is the chance of, of, of just doing convenience sampling, like you find people who are socially obliged to help you, like your friends, and uh, you, you do a first study with them informally. Um, you obviously don't get a spread about a lot of demographics, but it helps you to get really deep data. Um, or snowball sampling, right? You ask somebody to recruit somebody else, and they ask them in, in more detail. Um, the method here was um, advertisement on Facebook. So obviously, this was only reaching people who were on Facebook and who were responding to these kinds of advertisements for, for these studies. Uh, the participants were only English speaking, although they came from many different uh, countries of origin, like I think 21 countries. Um, 21 countries had more than 60 participants each. Um, that was the, uh, the, the breadth of the, the covering here. So you can see, you know, it's hard in a survey alone to reach very deep findings, but you can improve that with additional measurements. Now, before we get to the um, experimental research here, um, I should explain maybe where we are. We've taken research questions and we've looked at um, you know, how you formulate a hypothesis and we're now going through the observational part and we've looked at, I can just look at stuff, that's just observing. I can, you know, orbiting like the GPS one, I can take data and, and look for correlations without making any claims about what causes them. Um, that's the Facebook study. And now we're gonna get to sort of the the king of the disciplines here, the, you know, the, the, the golden standard where you actually can show if this changes, then causally it affects this other thing. And that's the experimental research. Um, this tries to infer an actual cause and effect relationship where you control what's known as an independent variable. And I can see now like the statistics trauma is breaking out now. You remember the words independent variable and dependent variable and it was also confusing. We'll clear this all up. So um, the independent variable is what you control. You observe the changes in the dependent variable, meaning that that other variable depends on the independent one, obviously. Um, let's try this uh, for sort of recalling what happened in DIS-1. We talked about these experimental designs, right? Because it's also important for user studies. Um, you look like you want to explain to me what between group versus in, within group means. Mm -hmm. between, in general, between groups is when there are two different groups and then um, okay. there, there's something going on between them, but, but, but within is within the group, the. Yeah, if you're really nervous. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. That's the idea. I, I make your uh, sort of adrenaline squirt out of your ears, and that gets you <laughs> to be widely awake, and, and it could happen to any one of you anytime. Um, you want to give it a shot? Yeah, between groups, within groups, when you use it as an experimental design, what, what's the difference? So, uh, one of them, I'm not sure the name. I know, I know. I confuse so it myself. One of them, you take one group and then make, uh, make them uh, do different experiments. Okay, that'll be within groups. 
So the other one, you take the two different groups and make each one do uh, another experiment. Mm-hmm. That's between groups, exactly. So you got 20 people, like, you know, between groups would mean you guys use interface A, you guys use interface B, right? Uh, why would I do that? What, what are the advantages of doing a between groups study where I split the group in two and each group only does one condition? You're saving time. Okay, so you're saving time. People don't have to do as many things, yes. Uh, yep? Yeah, the interfaces are related to people who tried the one first could be biased towards the other. Uh-huh, so there might be learning effects, right? Remember learning effects? If, well, so if I don't show you both interfaces, I don't have to risk that you've learned something from the first one that you're applying to the second one, thereby biasing the results. Yeah? Uh, they have less possibility to agree on something, because usually when there are two groups, they have many different opinions, but there, when there is one group, we tend to agree with someone who is proposing something. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's true, but, but that's not actually what's going on, right? Because um, you, in, in, bo in both cases, people could talk to each other. So um, it's just that you, know, you guys would still all be in the same room, but you would be using interface A and you would be using interface B. And of course, if you're running an experiment, you don't let people exchange uh, opinions before you, you ask them individually anyway. It's kind of like, you know, like in, at the police, you know, you're gonna ask you and then you're gonna be in a separate room and ask you. So uh, you wouldn't want people to sort of share their opinions anyway, because that would bias, again, would bias things, you're right. Um, but with the between groups, you've got, you know, the, you get rid of the, 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 the danger of learning effects. On the other hand, with within groups, you can save people, right? You don't need fewer participants. And we talked about when you could use one or the other, like basal uh, experiments versus more advanced cognitive experiments. There, there are differences here. Okay, so you might remember that. Um, so the, uh, let's take our simple example with the typing speed and, and, and playing games. Um, so how could you, how could you do um, a study of that? How would you structure that? Would you have to do between groups, within groups? Yeah? yeah I guess first you need to have the assumption what for the switch. Uh-huh. So if you, if you say video games causes uh, faster typing, then you first want to have a group of people who play lots of video games and a group of people who don't play so many video games. I don't think you can just uh, do this on the fly. Like, it's nothing that changes within a week. So yeah, you have, have one group that plays a lot of video games one week and none another week. So. Aha! Uh -huh. But the first ones you suggested doesn't get at the at the causation, right? If I just take one group that plays a lot of video games and the other one doesn't, and I measure both of their typing speeds, I'm still only at the correlation phase. Yeah, so you would actually have to nail something down and, and vary, vary a parameter to change this. But you're right, of course, it could be the question of how long do I need to do this? If I, my, my hypothesis is playing video games makes you faster typist, I would have to figure out how long do I need to have people play video games until I see an effect. And so the length of the experiment could be, could be a problem. Yeah? Right, right. So you're changing the independent variable um, of you know number of hours per week that you play video games, and you look for changes in the dependent variable as a result. Okay. Um, <coughs> so you could, for example, you could say you split them into two groups. You say you guys don't play any video games, and uh, you start with people who are all at the same level, for example, of, of typing speed, and you say you don't play any video games and you play this game every day for like two hours or so and then you again measure typing speed changes and you look for, you know, do these guys actually improve or, or not? Um, and then you have to do this probably for quite a while, like months or so, you're right, it's not something that changes quickly. Yes, go ahead. Uh, can't we just do that, uh, calculate the typing speed of a group of people and then observe uh, which amongst them are already playing video games a lot and which are not, and does it affect the uh, typing speed which they have? Uh -huh. Has it had no. an improvement session which we have to observe, or just in general we can? Yeah, so if we just did what you described initially, you're exactly stuck at the correlation part. Right? You take 100 people, 
You measure the typing speed. Everybody has a typing speed now, right? Anything between 30 and 100 words a minute or somewhere, whatever. And then you ask them, oh, and how many video games are you playing? So you're collecting exactly the information that will give you the correlation. So you will know, maybe, you know, that those people who happen to be faster typists also happen to be people who play more video games. But you don't know whether it's a causal effect. You know, because it could be that those are just the smart kids, or maybe they're all the kids from Korea who are like just really great at playing video games and, and also really fast typists. Who knows, right? So there could be some third variable that's influencing that and that, that's breaking your assumption. Because the danger is then, of course, you, you mention that in passing to a journalist and the next morning you open the paper, it's like, you know, play more games, you get faster in typing, right? That's, yeah. I've, I've seen a, a, an interview that was done with a colleague of mine many years ago where the next morning it says in the journal paper, object-oriented programming makes you happy. And so, you know, be careful uh, when, you, when you publish your results to be very clear about what you're, what you're reporting. And that's one of the most uh, well-known traps that people fall into, <coughs> mixing up correlation and, and causation, really. Yeah. Explain why. Uh, yes, you could also have measure everybody's typing speed at first, then have them all play video games, and then see how their typing speed changed. That would be a possible design. Yeah. There's, there's minor issues. I mean, there's always something you can compare, complain about in the experimental design. Yeah? I guess this is just a matter of fixing the other variables. So um, if it's really a long-term experiment, just a year or whatever, then you might want to have a control group to see if people just um, uh, don't just pick up faster typing naturally over there. That's the thing. If, for example, you do this like, I don't know, four months, right, and you measure typing speed every two weeks, maybe people actually learn to be, get faster at, by just doing those, those typing sessions at the, at the, you know, when, when they get measured. And so if you have two groups, you can take that out because you know, even if you don't do video games, this is how people improve their typing. And I would actually expect people to get faster if they get measured regularly because you get sort of in a, into doing it and concentrating on it. Um, okay, so good comment. Um, so we've talked about the benefits and drawbacks of uh, between group and within group. Um, we'll talk about this more in, in, in the next class. So this is really correlation, causation is something we can't talk about enough, uh, a very important issue. Um, so here's, the third here's another example of, of research that does mid-air pen and zoom on wall size displays. And this is a paper that, that did an actual sort of experimental design. Uh, again, the best paper award by uh, Nansel and others. Um, and the contribution here was that they designed and evaluated multiple uh, multi-scale navigation techniques for very large displays, wall size displays, uh, based on three key factors. How many hands were involved, the type of movement of these hands, and the type of feedback. Uh, this was done at the University of uh, Paris Sud and, and INRIA. Um, and the number of hands was one or two. The type of movement was linear or circular. And the type of feedback was a single path in one dimension, a 2D surface, or a 3D. Um, and here's, here's the uh, sort of overview of their findings. So you can see here um, bimanual versus unimanual uh, control path movements versus surface movements versus 3D free movements. Um, and in here, you see what they did. So for example, the 1D path control with a single hand meant that you use these things, for example, the mouse, and you move the scroll wheel back and forth. That's a linear movement in 1D. If you're taking DIS2, that might seem frighteningly familiar to the design space of input devices. Uh, and actually, this research was done by one of our former uh, master students here who had taken DIS to uh, heard about the design space and then did this research with her uh, during her PhD in, in Paris and based it on, on the concept of the design space. Um, he has a circular movement in 1D, right? So he's controlling basically a cursor or something on here, um, moving it around uh, in one dimension with this thing. Uh, in a 2D, that's like you know using a touch screen, for example, moving stuff around circular or linear. And uh, 3D here, uh, you've got gestures to, uh, for example, rotate your hand in order to rotate this cross or to uh, zoom in and out um, with, with these gestures. 
All of these are single-handed, and these are the bimanual versions of it. So again, I don't want to get into too much detail here. Um, you don't uh, need to read this paper. It's just I want to show you this is sort of six cells of the matrix. Uh, each cell has two different techniques shown in there. So the independent variable here is unimanual or bimanual times linear or gesture times three different guidance uh, types or types of feedback. So that's an overall 12 techniques um, divided up in this matrix. And the dependent variables are movement time, like how long does it take me to acquire a target or move a, move a cursor to a particular point, uh, number of errors, and, and the overshoot, the how much do they actually overshoot and have to go back. Um, the findings were actually that there were four groups of methods that had significantly different movement times. Um, we can find more in the paper, but I don't want to get into too much detail about it. I'll just show you briefly um, um, the video of, the, of these different interaction techniques. So there's our student, um, and here she is um, doing, doing her work. She's zooming in, for example, using one control here, and you can see it's being tracked in 3D, um, and all the techniques are being tried out um, as examples, you know, like unimanual, linear, on a single dimensional path. You know, it's like, for example, moving to this target by scrolling that wheel and then moving the whole pointer and, and back and forth. Here's the circular one doing this on a, on a scroll wheel where she's zooming in. And you can see, like, in between, she lets go and moves this whole thing, and that's the other control that she has. A lot of clutching going on here, like holding and, and letting go again. And if you read this paper, then you, know, you can think about all the ways that this sort of actually fits into the design space and which ones are these are relative and which ones are these are absolute. Okay, I'm not going to go through all of these because it you know, goes on forever. Um, but you can see the full video. We'll give you a link to that, and it's in the ACM Digital Library. So um, to wrap this up, uh, we've now looked at sort of three approaches to HDI research today. We've covered testing in much detail, right? The empirical science part. Um, we've understood that you could just observe something. You could observe, you know, observe a variable and its changes and report it, like the GPS in the car. You could observe two variables and their correlations, like you know, the Facebook study did. Or you could actually observe, uh, nail down one variable or everything except for one variable, which is the independent one that you vary. And even there, it could be you know, multiple things that you change, like you know, unimanual, bimanual, circular, linear, whatever type of feedback. And with all these different conditions you can create for your independent variable or variables, you then measure dependent variables, like execution time, error rates, satisfaction, user satisfaction, et cetera. And that is sort of the, what you will find in most cases as HCI research being conducted, because it's sort of fairly clear how you get to a, a repeatable and, and objective result. But these other two, observation or just correlation reporting, are also very important. And sometimes the only ones you can do, especially when it's a new field where you don't really know what you're looking for, really. This content was provided by RWTH, Aachen University.